If it's your first time here, many people have described us as a teaching church. It is Easter. We will still be teaching. So if you are not used to taking notes, there are sermon outlines. And for the kids, if kids are not used to being in church service, there are uh, children's sermons outlines as well. And we do encourage you to follow along with us and take notes. And there are also family follow-up questions so that as a family, uh, you can discuss with the kids what you've learned. And, and trust me, the kids are picking up a lot more than, than you think they are. So this morning, we're going to talk about the peace of the cross. When we think about Easter, there are so many beautiful images we can bring to mind. And in a church that practices expository preaching like we do, where we walk through a book of the Bible, we're in John for however many years we'll be in John. Uh, we're almost done. But we may sometimes do a, spe- a special message for Easter. But this passage in John is so perfect for where we are. And there's an aspect of Easter, there's an aspect of the resurrection that is often neglected. And so in God's providence, the passage where we find ourselves this morning is a perfect reminder for the world we live in. Because Jesus promises something here that the world cannot deliver on. Jesus promises something that the world cannot offer. Peace. Now this is not victory, peace, like victory over your, your enemies and victory in war as in the absence of any outside distractions or troubles. This is peace in the Hebrew sense, shalom, which means wholeness. It means lacking nothing. It means that in the middle of the fighting, in the middle of the tribulation, in the middle of the storm, you have peace that passes understanding. And that can only come from Christ. It is not a peace of circumstances. It is a peace of heart. And my prayer for you this morning and my question for you this morning is, do you have that peace? And I hope by the end of this message that is clear to you what that peace is and how you can receive it. So I want to give an example of this. Julian is a great example of how you can go from the tribulations and turmoil of this life to peace in Christ that makes no sense to anyone around you. There are many family members here today, and many of us who have family members here, they've seen us pre-Christ. Like, I remember him. That dude was screwed up. And he turned himself around. No, he didn't. Christ turned him around. No, she didn't. Christ turned her around. And it is only through Christ where we can say things like Horatio Spafford said. On Friday night, we had our Good Friday service. One of the songs we sang was It Is Well. The man who wrote this was a successful businessman in Chicago in the 1860s and 70s. He was very wealthy. He owned many businesses. He owned many buildings. And he was also a devout Christian. But in 1870, his only son died due to scarlet fever. Soon after that, the great Chicago fire wiped out every one of his assets. Every building, his entire life savings were burnt to the ground. He began to rebuild himself and his building. He planned a vacation, a trip, a holiday, as they called it in those days, to England with his wife and his four daughters. And as they had prepared for the trip, a big business deal came together, and he sent his wife along ahead, and he stayed back to close the deal. And she and her four daughters traveled across the Atlantic on a big tanker vessel. But in the middle of a storm, an iron ship ran into this tanker, and it capsized, killing over 200 people. 
This was the greatest naval accident leading up to the Titanic. It was a huge deal, and many, many were lost. And here he is across the Atlantic, hearing about this, waiting to hear what will happen, and he receives a telegraph from his wife. She says many things, but included were these solemn words. Survived alone, what should I do? He travels from Chicago to New York, gets on the first boat to go and meet his wife. And he knew the captain, and the captain brought him up to the deck when they got to the very spot where the ship sunk. And he's looking over the watery grave of his four little girls, uh, three of them very small. And he looks out over the waters, and he prays and writes these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll. That's the great storms that, that, that come from the clouds. Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say it is well, it is well with my soul. There's only peace that comes through a resurrected Christ that can make someone sing those words and write those words which we are still singing today. That peace was prophesied for hundreds of years before the coming of Jesus Christ. I want to bring to the screen a few of those. In Isaiah 32, because we're going to move through these, they will be up on the screen. Typically, I'd make you turn there, but I'm going to be nice to you guys this morning. So in Isaiah 32, there's a prophecy to the prophet Isaiah about the Spirit being poured out. And this is a mark of what happens when the Spirit is poured out. Isaiah 32, verses 17 and 18, and the effects of of righteousness will be peace. The Spirit comes and there will be righteousness and the effects of righteousness will be peace. And the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. If you want a biblical definition of what peace is, quietness and trust forever. My people, the ones who receive my Spirit, will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings and in quiet resting places. That is the peace that is prophesied. The prophecy goes a little bit further in Isaiah 57, verses 15 to 21. In Isaiah 57, God declares in verse 15, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. This peace would go to the contrite and to the lowly. Those were broken over their own sin. To revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For the spirit would grow faint before me in the breath of life that I made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him and I hid my face and was angry. But he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. That is each one of us apart from the grace of God. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore and comfort him in his mourners, creating the fruit of his lips. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. There is peace and the outpouring of the Spirit, but there is no peace for the wicked. One more of these in Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah prophesies. It's a very messianic book. There's a lot of prophecies that are fulfilled in Christ. And we're going to see this 
these two things come together. The prophecy of peace and the one who would bring it. Now we know these words if you're familiar with the Christmas story. Zechariah 9, starting in verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of the donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from, from Jerusalem meaning I will put wars to cease. And the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. He shall rule from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Peace will come from the pouring out of the Spirit. There is a peace that the people of God will have that the world cannot have, and this peace will come for the one who is humble and riding on a donkey, and he will be their salvation, and he will be their peace. We see it prophesied in the Old Testament. We see it accomplished in the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 13. Ephesians 2, 13 says this, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off and been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he is himself our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in flesh the dividing wall of hostility. In context here, he's talking about the hostility between Jews and Greeks. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing hostility. How do we have reconciliation with one another and with God through the peace that only comes through the cross? And even more explicitly in the book of Colossians, verses 9, chapter 1, verses 19 and 20 says this, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. This is where we find ourselves. The prophecies that look forward to Christ, the fulfillment in Christ, and Jesus' last moments in his last discourse with his disciples before he's going to be betrayed. And he's going to tell them about peace. This is the peace that he's revealing to them. And though our passage this morning will never explicitly mention the cross or the resurrection, it is so evident within it, and I want us to see that. But if you have not been here for our study in John, I want to just bring you up to speed of where we are. The purpose of John, John says in chapter 20, verse 31, that you may know that Jesus is the Son of God, and that if you believe in him, you will have life everlasting in him. He also tells us that in chapter 14, as Jesus kind of brings this together, this idea of, of peace and who he is. Chapter 14, verse 27 says this, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give with you. Not as the world gives you, do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you love me, you would rejoice, because I'm going to the Father, and the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does, you may believe. The entire purpose of the gospel of John is for belief. That's why John writes. That's why we preach and teach. We see throughout the gospel of John the miracles, how Jesus turns water into wine and heals those who are sick, and the proclamations, all the I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am uh, rivers of living water. I am the truth and the life. I am the resurrection. I am the door. I am the shepherd. 
by deed and by word, Jesus proclaims to be God. He shows us that he is God in the flesh. More recently, we covered the last dinner that he has with his disciples, the, the, the fateful night of Passover, where Judas is to betray him and the eleven are left. And he instructs them through chapters 14, 15, and 16. He tells them to abide in him. He promises the Holy Spirit who will teach and convict and will guide them. He also promises that the world will hate you because of me. Because they hated me first. And last week he tells them that in a little while you're going to be sorrowful. In a little while you're going to weep. Because I'm going to go to a cross. And you're going to see me beaten and abused and tortured and put into a grave. But your weeping will only last a little while. Because in a very short time, that sorrow will turn to joy and you will rejoice because you will see me again. The disciples didn't understand this because he wasn't speaking plainly to them. So let's pick up as Jesus tells them that he has not been speaking plainly to them. Chapter 16, verse 25. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have, and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each one of you to your own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word, for the encouragement of peace in the midst of tribulation. Thank you for taking on flesh and dying on a cross that we might die to sin. Thank you for rising to new life that we might rise to life in you. Thank you for the peace that is given in this life until you take us home or until you return. I just pray for everyone here this morning that that peace would be evident and it would be tangible and we would put our trust in it. If we have not already, look to the only one who can offer peace, the only source of peace, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. So, starting in verse 25. We pick up here where Jesus finally tells them. You know, this has been confusing, and if, and if you've been with us through John for a while, and if Jesus' language has been confusing to you, it's okay because it was meant to be confusing. He tells them, I have said these things to you in, in figures of speech. This, this word is essentially uh, symbolism or metaphor or, or parallel, something that signifies something else but is not clearly discerned if you don't understand its meaning. So Jesus admits this. But the hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. The hour is coming. It would be a matter of a few days. After his resurrection, he would meet the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and he would open the scriptures, and he would tell them how all the scriptures point to him. And it would be a matter of a few days after that where he sends the Holy Spirit to be within his people 
And so these seeds that Jesus planted in the ears of his disciples are now this full, flourishing gospel tree that is on full display for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear. There will be one day very soon when I won't have to speak to you in parables because my spirit will teach you and remind you of all things. And he talks about that day, the day that is, that is coming soon. The day that is very soon approaching, verse 26, in that day you will ask in my name. And I do not have to say uh, to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. In that day, Jesus resurrected and ascended, now becomes high priest, now becomes mediator, intercessor for his people. A dead man cannot do that. Our Savior is alive and interceding. He is the mediator. So there is no more need for, for, for priests or conduits. Jesus himself says, you can go directly for the, to the Father because I have made that possible. Amen. We have a direct line to the Father because Jesus has paid the bill in full. You don't have to ask me to ask the Father. You ask the Father. Just pray in my name. Be mine and you can go to the Father directly just as I have. And we have this because he has reconciled us to the Father in that day. And that day will be a few days away for these disciples. He goes on. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and believed that I came from God. I want you to hear this correctly. The focus of this verse is not our love for God, but God's love for us. For the Father himself loves you. I stand before you and tell you I love you, but I promise you, my Father in heaven, we are one, and he loves you as well. How can we ask anything? How can we go before God in prayer? Because the Father himself loves you. The Father loves his own, and he loves them because of the Son. The Father loves us because we have believed, and we know that he is from God. We love because he first loved us. Look at 1 John 4, 9 through 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He has loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. If you don't know that word, propitiation, it means perfect sacrifice, complete debt paid. How do we know the love of God? Here is the love of God. It was the love of God who sent Christ into the world. It was the love of God who sent him to the cross. It was the love of God who struck him and beat him for our sins. And it was the love of God that through that, we who deserve to die for our sins can have new life in Christ. And that love is to the ones he loves and who believe in the Son. Yes, our God is love. And yes, this is a gospel of love. But don't cheapen it. Don't listen to the world who makes the God of love this cheap human emotion that just comes and goes. This is a love that was willing to go to the cross for wicked sinners like us. Our God's love is deep and it is marvelous and it is effective. And it is that love where Jesus says, the Father himself loves you. And how is that love known? Because you have loved and you have believed that I came from God. I want to get too nerdy on you, but these are both perfect verbs in the Greek. What does that mean? It means it's something that's happened in the past and has continual effects. It has ongoing effects. 
Not that you just believed once or just loved once, but you have believed and you continue to believe. Not that you just loved me once, but you have loved and you continue to love. Those are the ones who the Father loves, the ones who have believed and those who have loved and who continue to love. There is no love for God or of God without love for the Son. It is impossible. These two things are inseparable. And it is through that love where we see the peace of God for us being reconciled. This can only happen through a resurrected son who can intercede for his brothers and sisters before the Father. So now Jesus begins to tell you who he is. You want to know who Jesus is? Look at verse 28. I have come from the Father, and I have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. I came into the world voluntarily for this hour. I'm not being, my arm is not being twisted. This is not against my will. This is the crescendo of redemptive history. My work here will soon be finished, and I will go back to my Father. I was never meant to remain here. Don't get too attached to this body. This was always the plan. I was always going back to the Father. But who am I? In four simple phrases, Jesus tells us who he is. Look at this, verse 28. I came from the Father. This is his deity. I came from the Father. I was in heaven with the Father, equal with him. We get his essence and his deity. And I came into the world. We get his incarnation. He took on flesh. God taking on flesh. Next line. And now I am leaving the world. After his resurrection, he will ascend, he will leave, and he will go back to the Father. So we get his deity, we get his incarnation, we get his ascension, but when he goes back to the Father, he will be glorified. And so we get his eternal state, the king will be back in his throne where he belongs. I came from the Father, I came into the world, I'm going back to my Father. I'm leaving this world and going back to my Father. Jesus lays out who he is, fully God, fully man, taking on flesh and going back to heaven to be at the right hand of the Father. And so apparently, this is the fireworks moment and the light bulb moment where the disciples, all right, now we get it. So you see this change in the disciples because all along, if you've been here in John or if you've read through John, the disciples are always like, what are you saying? How's this work? Come again, what's going on here? But his disciples said, ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. It's like the hamster wheel started to move. This is those aha moments in the the movies where the birds start chirping and the fireworks go off. And Oh, wait a second, you're that guy and this is, but let's not be so hard on them. Jesus told them that I'm speaking to you in figures of speech. And you weren't meant to fully get this yet. But they make these great connections. You know all. You are omniscient. You have come from God. It's a way of saying we know that you are of the same essence of God. You are sent of God. They are saying in their own simple way, you are God. And this is a great revelation because I think they really get it now. And Jesus responds probably how many of us would. Do you now believe? So many of us think that Jesus is this this stoic who never breaks character. Uh, Jesus is sarcastic. And Jesus is saying it, really? Now? After all this, finally, you now believe. And he's doing it in a very loving way. And most of us who are sarcastic, we do it in a very loving way. 
For, for those of you who are not, just, just know that it's, it's, a, it's a love language. <laughs> Do you now believe? But Jesus does not let them revel in, in, their, in their understanding too long because he comes right back to reality with them. Behold, the hour is coming indeed and has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home and will leave me alone. Behold, whenever Jesus says behold, whenever you see this in scripture, it's pay attention, stop what you're doing, look at me. I need to tell you something because do you believe? Great, you're going to need it. Because very soon, you're going to see the entire wrath of the Jewish nation and the Roman army poured out on me. And they're going to be looking for you next. And you're going to see very soon the gruesome nature of the cross. And you're going to be faced with this reality of, do you believe in me then? And when you're given the opportunity, you're going to scatter like roaches when the lights come on. And it's easy to get self-righteous here. But I would scatter like a roach when the lights come on without the Holy Spirit if I know that they crucified him and if I even speak his name, they're going to crucify me too. It's easy to believe in Jesus when things are safe. Many think they, they have faith because it's never been tested. It's easy to have faith when it's never cost you anything. Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, count the cost. It's easy to say, oh, I have Jesus deep in my heart down there somewhere where no one else knows but me. But would you say that when he's brought before Pilate? When you, would you say that when they come up to you and said, aren't you with him? Didn't you used to follow him? Would you say that when they nail him to the cross and they look for whoever else is following him? to put down this insurrection? Would you say then, I believe, sign me up, I'm with Jesus? We think, oh, that's just a far gone era. It's, it's 2,000 years in the past. This never happens anymore. Let's bring this to our day. For the past year, we've been praying for our brothers and sisters in the church in China. This is happening right now. Pastor Wang Yi and his wife are still in jail from December for preaching the name of Jesus Christ and threatening the state. Not literally threatening them, but, but the state is threatened. They've been beaten. Their children have been taken. Their assets have been froze. Their bank accounts have been seized. You start seizing bank accounts in the U.S., church is going to thin out real quick. It's where our hearts are. Would you still say, I believe then? Well, let's take it a step further. Our brothers and sisters in West Africa who are literally held at gunpoint and assassinated in front of their families for declaring the name of Jesus Christ by Boko Haram. So if you claim Jesus, we're going to shoot you in your face. Their biggest trouble is not worrying about where they're going to go to dinner, but whether they will be dragged out into the street and assassinated for the name of Jesus Christ. And this providentially I did not plan to talk about this, but this morning we see in Sri Lanka systematic attacks on churches. Over 200 killed, more than five, 600 wounded. I don't know what the numbers are up to now, but bombs being placed in Christian districts and in, in churches for the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, you will all scatter. You will all leave me alone. 
and I'd go to the cross for your sins, and that doesn't deter me. This was also prophesied, Zechariah 13, 7 through 9. Same prophet we read from earlier. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. This is God talking about his shepherd against the man who stands next to me. Sound familiar? Declares the Lord of hosts hundreds of years before Christ. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. What? Why would God do that? And the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish. One-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people and they will say, the Lord is my God. This does not catch God by surprise. He was not sleeping when this happens. The refinement happens for the sake of his people to strengthen them. It is those who call on his name who he has communion with, and they will be his people, and he will be their God. But the most striking thing in here, this last line in verse 32, yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. You've all scattered. I'm on my way to the cross, and you left me alone. None of you thought about me. You you just thought about yourselves. But I'm not alone, because the Father is with me. That is peace personified. That is shalom, being in wholeness and lacking nothing. While Jesus was beaten and mocked and put on the cross, he was not alone. The Father was with him. It's all Jesus needed to sustain him. It's all we need to sustain us is the Father. And there was only one moment while Jesus in the flesh when the Father was not with him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The moment where we don't understand how, but the full wrath of God poured out on Jesus Christ, the person, and the communion with the Father and Son was broken because the Father cannot look on sin, but a man in flesh can. And it was in that moment when our sins were passed to him and his righteousness passed to us. The only time the Father was not with him, the only time he was alone was when he bore our sin. That is the only time when he was alone. And the only way we were with him was with our greed and our pride and our lust and everything else that we contributed to Christ on the cross. And Jesus, as a masterful teacher and preacher that he does, he brings them up, he brings them down, but he always closes with encouragement. Look at verse 33. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. They don't understand it yet. You're going to weep. I'm going to go away from you. But in me, you will have peace. I want to spend a little bit of time on this verse because this is a perfect close to this entire discourse. Jesus brings them up. He brings them down. He promises them what will come, the good things, the bad things, but he ends on a note of victory and encouragement. I said these things. You may have peace in me. In this world, you will have tribulation, but take our eye of overcome the world. So I want us to understand this. What is the peace of the cross? Look at the three phrases here. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Nowhere else, in me only. There's this direct contrast here. In me, peace. In the world, tribulation. 
You're either in tribulation in the world or you're in me. Peace is guaranteed in me. Tribulation is guaranteed in the world. But take heart. I have overcome the world. This is not a generic peace, but this is peace through the overcoming of Christ. What is, what is tribulation? This word in the original language is oppressing. The word that they use to make wine when you take grapes and you pulverize them. The pressure, the affliction, the trouble, it's guaranteed in this world. Not one person in this room would disagree with that statement. That there are trials and tribulations in this life. This life always has a pressure grip on us. But what if there's a solution to this pressure? What if there is peace? I want to speak directly to you. There are many of you right now, many of you sitting in this room who are beat up and tormented inside. There is nothing in your life that feels peaceful, but you can have peace. It comes through belief. And if you do believe, there are many of you who believe, but you still have no peace because you don't trust this. You don't trust that Jesus has truly overcome the world. Do you know that in Christ you are not alone? Do you know that in Christ the Father sustains you just like, it over, just like you uh, sustained him? Our only help in trouble, in persecution, in trial, in difficulty is that Christ has overcome the world. What has he overcome? Sin and death. Why do we celebrate the resurrection? Because if Jesus raised to life and we believe in him, we raise to new life too. If sin no longer holds Jesus, death no longer holds Jesus in Christ, it no longer holds us. This is what we are celebrating. How did he overcome it? By taking sin and death with him on the cross. By conquering the worst that the world had to throw at him. The world, the flesh, and the devil threw everything at him and still are. But he said, it is finished on the cross. Look back there. There is no hope, no overcoming, no life at all if there is not a resurrected Christ. There is no peace if he has not overcome the world. He tells them, you must trust in me and my victory. The only way to overcome the world is through me. The only peace is in me. And peace only comes through faith. Not in your ability to save yourself because you can't. There is no peace apart from Christ. And the beautiful thing about this entire interaction is it is his victory, his overcoming, yet it is our reward through faith. Look at 1 John 5. 1 John 5, verse 4 and 5. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? If you are in the grips of the world, if the the temptation and the tribulation and the pressure of the world feels like there is no end and there is no hope. There is hope. Obi-Wan was Leia's only hope. It's because she didn't have Jesus. I had, I had to break the tension a little bit. But seriously, though, many of you are putting hope in yourselves. Many of you 
are still thinking that you can pull it all together, that you're strong enough. I can figure this out on my own. I've got this. Or even if I don't, I'm going to die trying. Let me help you out. You can't. You can't fix yourself. You can't perform your own heart surgery. Never been done. Never will. The disciples walked with Jesus in the flesh for three years. They saw the miracles. They heard him speak. And it was not until he opened their eyes that they were able to believe. It is not pure. You can't follow Christ through osmosis. You must believe in him. You must recognize that he is the son of God. That's what John tells us in 1 John. that Those are the ones who overcome the world. They were scattered. They were confused. They were overwhelmed. But Jesus says, my peace will come when I overcome the world. And how does that peace come? What is the peace of the cross? I just want to summarize that before we close. The the peace that happens on the cross. Jesus dies to sin and raises to new life. That those who put their faith in him will die to sin and raise to new life. What are the benefits of the cross? As Peter calls them, spiritual blessings. In him we have redemption, meaning the, the, the price that needed to be paid for our sins was paid by him. In him we have atonement, meaning the sacrificial covering of blood that needed to be covered for sins we have in him. In him we have justification, that means the legal standing. We are guilty before a holy and perfect God, and Jesus paid the price. We are justified. We are also reconciled. The relationship with God that was lost in the garden when Adam and Eve desired to be like God instead of to worship God. Man is now reconciled to God and they can say he is my God and he can say that we are his people. There is adoption. There is being brought into a family where brothers and and sisters who have been through the same things you have can now stand shoulder to shoulder and say it is through Christ, through God's grace that I am part of a family that can never be taken away from me. There is this is resurrection and this is new life. This new life can only come through the cross. And in this new life, you will have trials. Jesus guaranteed it. But through the midst of trials, through the midst of storms, children taken, families imprisoned, cancer, death, all the other things, there is love and there is joy and there is peace because Jesus promises it. Jesus accomplished it for those who trust and believe in him. So just a few final thoughts. Peace in Christ brings plain understanding of God's revelation. We see that here. And it brings plain access to God the Father through the Son. It also brings peace through trials and peace in this world and peace for eternity. This is the peace of the cross because he has overcome the world. There is nothing left to do. There's nothing of our own strength, nothing for us to overcome, but put our faith in him. That becomes our victory. That becomes our overcoming. And it is through his death and resurrection that he accomplished that. This is why John wrote, this is why we gather, this is why we preach, this is why we speak this to one another, this is why we sing these songs. If you wonder why do we do this, not just on Easter, but all year long, because this is who we are, this is the reality, that our Savior is risen, and through the cross we have peace in him. He became the man of sorrow so that we could become the people of joy and rejoicing. Let's pray.